University professors spend a lot of time talking about a lot of things with each other at academic conferences and in academic journals. The problem with that is you don't go to academic conferences and you don't read academic journals, and I want to talk to you. Some of the most interesting thoughts in America about popular culture never get to be heard by people outside of the walls of academia, so I'm on a mission to bring those thoughts to you. Fabulous people, interesting ideas, brilliant conversations. I'm Dr. Christopher Bell, and this is a hard hat area. You're on with the Deconstruction Workers. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever it is you are. This is Dr. Christopher Bell. You are on the Deconstruction Workers. And joining me today on the program is returning Deconstruction Worker, Natalie Shepard. Natalie is a doctoral student at Louisiana State University. Welcome back to the show, Natalie. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Today, we are talking about an interesting confluence of things, and that is the freeform television program Cloak and Dagger. And it's an interesting confluence of things because, for a variety of reasons. Number one, I was born in Louisiana. I was born in New Orleans, and New Orleans is the setting for this ABC television show. Natalie currently lives in New Orleans and does tours there, which will figure in heavily into both the program and this program. And it's comic book lore which is a study area of mine, and popular culture studies, of course, which is a study area for both of us. Natalie mostly does literature studies. Yeah? Yeah. Yeah. I'm in the English. You're in the English department. So it, there's all kinds of things that come together here that I think will be interesting for us to talk about. Yeah, absolutely. So for those of you who are unfamiliar with Cloak and Dagger, today's program comes at a pretty nicely timely spot. Today is March 29th. Also, by the way, being my wife's birthday, happy birthday. March 29th, the next season, season two of Cloak and Dagger begins on April 4th. So you can check it out as you're listening to this. You'll be able to check that out next week and get back into the show. So what I thought I would do is set up some history of Cloak and Dagger, where it comes from, why it's so important, and then talk through some stuff. Cloak and Dagger is, in my opinion, one of the best Marvel properties currently in either their cinematic universe or their television universe. I think it's just really good. And when I was a kid, Cloak and Dagger was a big part of my comic book collecting. First appearance of Cloak and Dagger is in Spectacular Spider-Man number 64, that is March 1982. So this is really early on in my comic book collecting life. I was very young when this book came out, and it was probably way too adult in nature for me. But, you know, <laughs> what what my parents didn't know wouldn't hurt them, so to speak. Cloak and Dagger is the story of Tyrone Johnson and Tandy Bowen. And in the original story, Ty runs away from Boston after the police kill his friend. Tandy is the daughter of a supermodel who is a really terrible mother and neglects her and she runs away. And these two runaways meet in New York during a mugging. They're being mugged and the mugging gets foiled and they help each other out. But it turns out that that was just a ruse to sweep them up into this plot by the mafia or the magia as gets oftentimes used in Marvel comics. They didn't want to use the actual word mafia, but it's the mafia. So they're swept up in this plot by the mafia and they get these experimental drugs tested on them. And they're part of a big group of teenagers, but they're the only two teenagers who survive. And during that experimental drug testing, they get their superpowers. So this whole story comes out of a very early 1980s Ronald Reagan war on drugs morning in America just say no all that stuff is going on at the time and it really has that Marvel jumping into the anti-drug narrative vibe to it. Cloak and Dagger appear in Secret Wars 2. They are a part of the Runaways. 
They are in Age of Apocalypse and in Secret of Invasion and in Civil War. So if you're a, a comic book aficionado, you know Cloak and Dagger play a pretty significant role in a lot of the major story arcs in Marvel since the 1980s, which is interesting to me because Cloak and Dagger are very much what we call street-level superheroes. They fall in line with characters like Daredevil and Luke Cage and Jessica Jones and The Punisher, Ghost Rider, Iron Fist, those kinds of characters. That is, Cloak and Dagger are the kinds of superheroes that fight drug dealers and purse snatchers. They are not the kind of characters that fight, you know, Doctor Doom or the alien invasion. That's not the kind of characters that they are. And so Cloak and Dagger are sort of an obscure pairing of people. And that's why it was really exciting to me and to lots of other comic book nerds when Freeform, which is the redesigned ABC family after it was bought out by Disney, Freeform decides to put Cloak and Dagger on the air. And most of Freeform's shows are aimed at older teenagers. So it's a very 17 to 19 year old demographic market. And Cloak and Dagger falls into what we sometimes call MCU light. That is, they are part of the Marvel television universe, which has some tangential relation to what's going on in the, in the cinematic universe. But generally speaking, MCU characters don't appear on MTVU shows and MTVU characters don't appear in the movies. So they reference each other, but they're not in the same universe. So Cloak and Dagger appears in the MTVU in June of 2018, and it's the best series launch on Freeform in years. It was the most watched Freeform drama since the ending of Pretty Little Liars, and they took a lot of what was really great about the original Cloak and Dagger mythos and brought it onto TV. So the casting is really interesting. They bring in Aubrey Joseph to play Cloak. Aubrey Joseph played Simba in The Lion King on Broadway. They brought in Olivia Holt to play Tandy Bowen. Olivia Holt is a Disney Channel product. She started on a Disney XD show called Kickin' It. She was on a really patently terrible Disney show called I Didn't Do It. And now she's playing Dagger on Cloak and Dagger. And they bring in Gloria Rubin, who was on ER for a long time, and a lot of really great character actors. So that's the long-form setup of Cloak and Dagger, where it comes from, and how we end up in this moment right now, where Cloak and Dagger becomes a phenomenon. It's got really great ratings. It draws about 1.6 million people per episode, which is, which is really great for a freeform show. They've done some interesting things with the narrative. They took it out of New York and brought it to New Orleans, which gives the show a whole completely different vibe than the original story. There are too many superhero shows set in New York anyway. It's kind of boring to put another superhero in New York. So letting New Orleans have its own street-level superheroes is pretty cool. And it sets up some potential crossover work between Cloak and Dagger and the Runaways TV show, Runaways takes place in Los Angeles. There's possibilities to cross them over with Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. There's lots of sort of TVU crossover potential as well. So I've talked a lot about Cloak and Dagger. And the lead up to this is because I am a comic book nerd, because I do this podcast, and because I'm really into the theories of adaptation, how we take a work and we move it into new spaces. The perfect person to discuss this with is Natalie Shepard, who does adaptation studies, uh, does adaptation work, and also is easily forced into watching things that I think are cool. So, uh, hi, Natalie. Hi. Introduction. <laughs> what, what do you want to talk about? I frog marched you into watching this show, into binging it when I know you had lots of other things you needed to be doing because I am the worst kind of friend. So what did you think? Well, I loved it. I'd actually already started watching it before <laughs> you forced me into it. And I started watching it not knowing really too much about Cloak and Dagger. I'd read a few of the comics, I think, and I'd seen them obviously appear in Avengers stuff. But I really started watching the show because it was filmed here in New Orleans. 
And my hustle job is I'm a tour guide on the weekend. And one of the most interesting things for me about being a tour guide is the questions I get from people about things that have happened here. And a lot of those questions come from TV shows. New Orleans right now is, I think we're calling ourselves Hollywood South because stuff is being filmed here now. So we've got the originals, we've got NCIS New Orleans, probably a dozen other shows that I'm just forgetting and I don't want to list them all. And people ask me all the time about, you know, where is this shooting location? American Horror Story, another big one. Um, where did this really happen? So I watched the show expecting to get questions like that. And I wasn't disappointed because it is so tied in with so many New Orleans history stories. And you talked a lot about Cloak and Dagger's comic book history. I actually was waiting to hear you talk about Monica Rambeau as well, because it seems like they're pulling a lot from that comic book. I didn't touch Monica Rambeau because she's got more of a Captain Marvel lineage. But yeah, Monica Rambeau mm-hmm. is another New Orleans superhero. Well, even when we talk about origins, though, Cloak and Dagger uh, in the comic books get their powers from like an injection test drug thing. And Monica Rambeau does get hers from this kind of weird energy explosion in New Orleans. So um, they kind of stole that origin story for the TV show. They did. There's actually a really famous panel where Monica is walking out of the ocean, out of the Gulf, basically, Mm -hmm. uh, from this energy explosion. They mirror that in the show, in the Cloak and Dagger show, with Cloak and Dagger as children washing up on shore. They changed the Mm -hmm. uh, origin story in the television show to there's an explosion on an oil derrick, but it's not actually an oil derrick. It's actually doing some mystical thing out there. And in the explosion, these two kids are caught in it and they then received their superpowers. Which seemed very reminiscent of Monica Rambeau. I kept waiting for a reference or an Easter egg of some kind to pop up, and I never quite got it until I went to see Captain Marvel, of course. So that was always really interesting to me. So not only are they pulling from New Orleans history, but they're also pulling from other kind of New Orleans comic book stuff. I'll be interested to see if there's a Gambit crossover, if that ever starts filming. Well, now there's the intense possibility. As many listeners may know, the deal between Disney and Fox was finalized earlier this week, which gives Disney control over all of Fox's entertainment properties. For our purposes, most famously, the Fantastic Four, Silver Surfer, and the X-Men. And giving the X-Men back to Marvel absolutely opens the possibility of Gambit making an appearance on Cloak and Dagger. Right. Which is scary for all kinds of weird corporate America reasons, but very for comic book fans. One of the things that has popped up a lot on my Twitter this week is, I'm glad that we get to see Wolverine punch Hulk in the face while civilization burns. So... (laughs) There is some element of that. Oh, that's great. Definitely. So I thought we could start off talking about New Orleans stuff in Cloak and Dagger. Um, Like I mentioned, I'm a tour guide, so I'm all about that. And I actually didn't know you were born in Louisiana until we started talking about this show. So Yeah. My whole family, my brother and my sister and I, we all live in Colorado, but the entire rest of my extended family all still lives in a basically 10 block radius in the same place they've lived for the last 125 years. Oh, that's amazing. Which is great when you're a kid, you know, and you can run from house to house, which is not great when Hurricane Katrina hits and, you know, we lose houses in the floods. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I mean, my family, my family is very centered in New Orleans. Yeah. And I don't have that kind of history with the city. I actually moved here six years ago from Ohio where my family also lives in the Tri-County area, very close to each other. But I kind of fell in love with the city when I moved down here. My fiancé is actually born and raised in New Orleans. He refused to watch the show with me because there were so many weird discrepancies. Uh, Ty, when he like calls to have his bike stolen, says that it's on Carrollton when he's very clearly under the Claiborne Bridge. That was weird. But I was able to get over them and enjoy it. As often happens with TV shows that are set in cities where the people making the TV shows aren't from those cities. 
there are weird things that happen mm-hmm. in this show. Things that I found myself several times saying things like, well, that's not where that is. Or I'm pretty sure what you're doing right now is not legal. Or all kinds of these things you would only know if you're from there. Right. One of the things that caught actually a lot of tour guides' attention down here was in episode three when Ty actually goes to take a tour with Avita and they very clearly walk into Armstrong Park and they walk out of Lafayette Cemetery in the Garden District on this walking tour. Yes. Very strange. And of course, that has a practical reason, right? So you can't film inside St. Louis, number one. The Archdiocese won't let it happen. So they had to kind of find another cemetery that they were allowed to film in. They also weirdly had to like make this fake Marie Laveau tomb over in Lafayette Cemetery because her tomb is in the cemetery they're not allowed to film in. There's also these weird things like you mentioned a lot of things that aren't legal Tour guides actually aren't allowed to have any kind of voice amplification. So while she's walking around with that speaker, she's very in much in danger of getting a huge fine. <laughs> and at a certain point, she also tells Ty to do this voodoo ritual thing outside of the tomb where they mark on the tomb with three X's and he has to turn around three times. And the turning around three times is, is fine. But the marking on the tomb with the three X's is this kind of legend that tour guides have been trying to fight against for years because it is actually vandalism and it's a big reason why film crews aren't allowed inside cemeteries why you have to have this extra license to do a cemetery tour why they have guards outside of st louis number one now preventing anyone from going inside without a chaperone so that kind of thing is actually somewhat dangerous to the history of new orleans kind of spreading that misinformation like the Wilson brothers duel. That's not where duels would have been held. And they probably wouldn't have been with guns at that point in history. The Spanish flu of 1918, very weird choice because of all of the weird diseases in new Orleans. The Spanish flu isn't the one we really associate with new Orleans. The thing that I found really interesting is um, where our scientist hero lives is actually inside of the abandoned Six Flags Park? Yeah, Mina Hess, the environmental engineer that's like Tandy's BFF throughout the season, for some reason lives inside the abandoned theme park on the edge of New Orleans. And I have no idea how or why they thought that would make sense. The best shot of her house, which also appears to be inside an old shipping container or something, has a roller coaster in the background it's it's very bizarre and definitely not legal <laughs> i suppose there's an argument to be made that the roxon corporation has enough money to purchase that land and to keep it such that people believe it's abandoned but there's a lot of explaining that would have to be done within the narrative of the show to circumvent the fact that we know where her house is is super illegal right well and Film crews film there all the time. Jurassic World was filmed inside the amusement park. I think American Horror Story has a scene or two inside of there. But they don't make it someone's house. Um, It's very much supposed to be this kind of derelict place that someone's sneaking into or destroying or something. Uh, She can apparently walk to the swamps from there. I'm not super familiar with that area of town, but I think it's a little bit longer than just a quick jaunt across the road. Yeah, I would agree. Another thing that I found really interesting within the narrative of the show, and interesting, I mean, bearing very little resemblance to actual life in New Orleans, is, how do I put this delicately? Being someone who is from there. <laughs> I feel very confident New Orleans is still perhaps one of, if not the most segregated cities in America. Mm-hmm. And... It is not portrayed that way within the narrative of the show. We took my daughter to Mardi Gras for the first time last year. And the one thing that she came away with was high school marching bands. If you go to the parades, high school marching bands, you will see entire bands that are black and Mm -hmm. followed immediately by entire bands that are white. High schools are completely segregated in that city and 
it's not portrayed that way within the narrative of the show. And I found that an interesting choice. Yeah, the high schools especially is, is a weird thing. Because I actually very much appreciated that Ty does go to a, a Catholic school, which felt very accurate. New Orleans has... Yes. It, it's pretty much all Catholic and charter schools at this point. We don't really have public schools here anymore. And that is something that the entire country is, is for some reason trying to replicate right now, even though it's clearly been a failure here. Because of the reasons you just mentioned, it's, it's very segregated, whether that's by design or just something that people took advantage of down here. And the charter schools especially have kind of a bad reputation for refusing students to come to their schools who maybe have a past or something like that of suspensions or bad behavior in schools or things of that nature. So putting Ty, whose family is very much trying to gain this upward mobility into a Catholic school, felt very intentional rather than a charter school. I would agree. I... I don't know anyone, certainly no one in my family, but no one who I think my family has ever even been associated with went to public school. I mean, so it's not Mm -hmm. recent. This is the way New Orleans has been set up. I mean, I, when I tell my students that I teach at LSU that I went to a public school, they all look at me with shock and wonder how I got so far having been to one of those public schools that they hear about, right? Just even New Orleans, it's, it's really all of at least southeast Louisiana. I don't know about the rest of the state, but that whole region has that history. I mean, and that's not to say that there aren't public schools. There are, but public schools are where you go when you are out of options. And that is why they have largely died off in the city. Because, and, and there's another factor that plays into this, which becomes really interesting within the narrative of the show, and that is gentrification or what we might call disaster capitalism. That is when mm-hmm. something tragic happens to an area and the original inhabitants have to move out either temporarily or permanently, then developers come in, quickly buy up the land because people are in desperate situations and then use that to turn those areas around and sell them at higher prices than the original inhabitants can pay. And therefore, they gentrify, they weed out the original population and fill it up with largely white hipsters. This happened to severe effect in Denver. It's currently happening in Denver really badly, where areas that used to be largely Latino have been completely gentrified out of the original population. And I have seen it firsthand happening in New Orleans as people struggle to return to their to their homes after Katrina, struggle to reopen their businesses and so on, those places are bought up by developers and then redone in ways that don't really uphold the legacy of where those of what those places are. Yeah, I mean one of the biggest threats I think to New Orleans right now is Airbnb because a lot of those developers, instead of renting out their houses, even to the white hipsters, which is bad enough, turn them into Airbnbs. I mean I've got one I live in a double shotgun and on the other side, my landlord couldn't find anyone to rent the place at the exorbitant price he wanted to charge. So he just turned it into an Airbnb and there's five on my street right now. So you don't even have people who live in the city taking up these homes and that in turn drives rent prices up. It has all sorts of detrimental effects on businesses, especially locally owned businesses, things of that nature. Within the context of the show, the way that they handle this is the same way they've done it on daredevil and on luke cage and to some extent even on iron fist which is if you are a person who is trying to economically exploit the citizens you are necessarily the villain so the rocks on corporation becomes the villain in the narrative of this story because of the role they play in economic redevelopment which I think is interesting. Yeah, Roxxon stands in for a lot of corporations and corporate policies in New Orleans, in addition to Airbnb. I mean, I saw very clear connections to the BP oil spill. Absolutely. That's the big one that I saw as well. Yeah. Uh, yeah, the BP oil spill was the big one. Airbnb, of course. So, I mean, they are standing in for these for these giant corporations. The BP oil spill is really the most direct, I think, for the Roxxon Corporation. 
because of the way that they redesigned the origin story for Cloak and Dagger to happen as a result of this oil rig disaster. The other interesting thing is that the villain in the first season, the big villain in the first season, is a cop. The first season villain is Detective Connors, Mm -hmm. who is a murderer. He shoots Ty's brother. So they, they keep that part of Cloak's original origin story. Originally, Ty runs away from Boston after police kill his friend. In this, Ty is out with his brother, and the police shoot his brother. This Detective Connors shoots his brother, and that's when he runs and hides and is thereby caught in the explosion that gives him his powers. Mm -hmm. So there's this narrative of white police officer, young black kid in New Orleans that permeates the show in a way that I think is really salient for the times in which we live. Yeah, absolutely. There are very clear echoes of the Black Lives Matter movement here, which is something that I found interesting watching the show because New Orleans hasn't really had a Black Lives Matter moment yet, at least not one that's been widely publicized. Hey, hold that thought. Let's take a short break here. We'll be back in two and two. Did you know that the Deconstruction Workers podcast has a Patreon page? Well, we do. We have a Patreon page. It is www.patreon.com slash podcast DCW. You can donate as little as $1 a month towards keeping the lights on, and we would really appreciate your support. So click on over to www.patreon.com slash podcast DCW and pledge your support if you enjoy what you're hearing. Now, back to the show. So you were saying? I think the closest that we've had is actually in Baton Rouge. With, I think it was Anthony Sterling who was there. But we do have a huge police corruption problem, which you see in the show. Yes. I One of the things that I always remember growing up is I don't think there was ever a time in my life where I didn't at some point hear the mayor is crooked, the cops are crooked. Mm-hmm. You know, the government in New Orleans has always been problematic, at least within my family. Yeah, I mean, even going back to Huey P. Long, who is pretty widely regarded as like our best politician. Like he did a lot for the city of New Orleans. He was the the chicken in every pot guy. Wildly corrupt. I mean, that's the reason we got a bridge going from the West Bank to Metairie before we ever got a bridge going from New Orleans to Algiers. Right, it's because his brother owned some land over there or something, and he took all bribes from people in the city. Like he was wildly corrupt, and did it in a way that we liked because it benefited us, right? But I think that legacy has always been here. I think it sort of stems from all the way back at the beginning, where New Orleans was a port of call. Mm-hmm. It was the biggest port in the South which brings a lot of reputable business, but it also brings a lot of disreputable business. If you're the biggest port in the South, you don't just get the Royal Shipping Company. You also get, you know, every pirate ship in the Gulf of Mexico. Yeah, absolutely. There's this legacy of criminals and organized crime rising up with the birth of the city itself. Yeah, and New Orleans has honestly embraced that. I mean, we had one of the first legal red light districts in the country with Storyville, right? So we've always been aware of this corruption and tried to make it work for us. Another part of the series that I really connected to, because it is in my own history as well, is the second half of the season, we are introduced to Ty's father Mm -hmm. and Ty's father's connection to a group called the Red Hawks. The Red Hawks are a social club a social organization, they are a crew. And they're a crew of Mardi Gras Indians. Mm -hmm. The Mardi Gras Indian legacy plays a huge role, both in the narrative of the show and in my own personal life. My grandfather was a Mardi Gras Indian and a part of a Mardi Gras Indian crew. And I can remember being, you know, six, seven, eight years old, sitting in my grandfather's living room with him, tying feathers as he was making a headdress for that year's Mardi Gras or beating 
cloth that he would then use to make his costumes and so on. And so I was a part of that Mardi Gras Indian tradition as a kid mm-hmm. uh, when we would go back to New Orleans for Christmas or for, or for the summer or whatever. The way that they portray Mardi Gras Indians within the show for me is one of the most beautiful and accurate and culturally appropriate portrayals in the entire series. So for those who don't understand what Mardi Gras Indians are in New Orleans, one of the things that was happening throughout the late 1700s and throughout most of the 1800s is that native Americans who lived in that area or who were relocated to that area oftentimes were in cahoots with slaves and helping slaves escape. So there became this real connection between Native Americans and black slaves in New Orleans, which is how we get both Cajun and Creole people. My family being Creole, but there's lots and lots of Cajun people in that area as well. As black slaves and Native Americans in the area began to intermingle. It is how my people come to be, so to speak. And the Mardi Gras Indians are this reminder, this legacy of the nature of the relationship between Native Americans and Black people and the city itself, the celebration of Mardi Gras. But really what it is, is it's social clubs where men mentor young men. Men come together in friendship and they mentor young men and it's very fraternal in its conception, teaching young men how to live right which is the way that it's also portrayed in the show, which I thought was really, again, beautiful and fantastic. But I know there was controversy about the Mardi Gras Indians for a while as well with do Black people have the right to appropriate this Native culture and these kind of Native traditions, right? Certainly for Creole people, there is an argument to be made that it is our history. Mm-hmm. You know, and Cajun people as well. Okay. Beyond that, yeah, I don't know. I I think, like with everything else, you start getting into some gray areas. Mm-hmm. Well, and I'd heard a story, and I haven't been able to verify this in any way, so it might just be a story, that at one point there was supposed to be this big meeting of various tribes from the area and the Mardi Gras Indian various chief leaders, and they were going to really hash this out. And during that conference, there was a white buffalo born on tribal land and everyone took that as a sign that this was fine and i haven't been able to verify this at all and it feels wrong but i've met several people who insist that it's true Hmm. you know that the mardi gras indians are one of the most accurately portrayed aspects of new orleans culture in cloak and dagger and pretty much any other show that bothers to mention them Um, i remember watching the treme and being really moved by their well for the most yeah i had forgotten about that but yeah in treme there's also this portrayal of mardi gras indians yeah so there's this huge respect for the mardi gras indians that media tends to be really sensitive to which we don't see in other aspects like any portrayal of voodoo for example doesn't get that same treatment at all of course in this show there is voodoo because there's always there's always voodoo there's always there's always voodoo and it's always some level of a cartoon version of voodoo yeah it's not very often sort of rooted in actual religious practice and i think that goes that goes back to white zombie right with bella lugosi um and that was set in haiti obviously not new orleans but it kind of started us on this whole voodoo as an evil thing which is not how cloak and dagger portrays it they don't portray it as this evil witchcraft type of deal no but there's certainly a pretty heavy supernatural element to it. definitely and i appreciated some things that they did so the scene where auntie Chantel, i think was her name auntie i want to say her name is clarice oh, maybe that's it i think it's clarice is wandering throughout the city drinking rum and spitting it at places rum does have a very strong presence in new orleans voodoo mostly because of convenience we have a lot of rum down here there was also the scene where they're pulling the back together for ty and 
he asks where on earth he's going to get all these things and they take him to Whole Foods, which feels very modern voodoo. <laughs> right. But other things were, were very strange. So her living in the back of the voodoo shop in the middle of the French Quarter and having this huge two-story house felt wrong, which is a spatial discrepancy. Um, there were also the, the dolls on the mantle, which felt like they were trying to echo voodoo dolls, which aren't really a thing in any of my research. I'm obviously not an expert, but as far as I can tell, that's not a thing. I believe that is uh, an American construct. (laughs) The voodoo doll in the way that we think of voodoo dolls, I believe is a fabric. I I may be speaking, again, I'm not an expert either, and I may be speaking slightly out of turn, but I'm pretty sure... It's largely a fabrication. Yeah, I mean, the closest we get are um, poppets from the Conjure tradition, which came from the the Northeast. So the enslaved people who came from different parts of Africa than the parts of Africa we stole people from. <laughs> <laughs> right. And there may have been some blending over the years, but I don't think it's even today a large part of voodoo culture. No, I would agree. And so when Auntie Clarice is telling him the story of it, it's the story that eventually we find out arcs the whole season, which is this idea of the divine pairing. Mm-hmm. There's always a divine pairing. There's always two. They're always male and female. And one of them always dies mm-hmm. saving the city. And so I think it's the easiest way for her to tell that story because it's a visual representation. Mm-hmm. You know, so if, if she has this collection of essentially voodoo dolls, she can use those to tell the story. And in episode seven or eight, where we see her put Tyrone and Tandy in that legacy as doll representations. Yeah. And it's interesting to see the progression over the years. So it starts out with like corn husk dolls. And then we get these like clearly homemade fabric dolls. And by the time we get to Tyrone and Tandy, there are these 3d printed almost models of them. Not so much these very kind of homemade, things that we think of when we think of voodoo dolls. It's an interesting way to tell the story while also still being awfully stereotypical. Yeah. You know, um, I can see why they do it. I can see why it's a shorthand. I can see why the villain in The Princess and the Frog is the Shadow Man. Mm-hmm. It's an easy way to put a New Orleans-style villain in a thing by tying them to voodoo, but that's very stereotypical and in some ways disrespectful to the actual religious practice. Yeah, and that's always the thing that I think Hollywood forgets is that voodoo is a living religion. There are still people here who practice it. it it's not just like shorthand for witchcraft. I read an interview somewhere with Joe Pekaski where he talked about having a writer on his staff who was very, very familiar with voodoo and had grown up down here and was largely responsible for putting you know, the voodoo and the Mardi Gras Indians and all of the things that we would think of as the New Orleans stuff into the show. And at one point he talks about how this dualism of the divine pairing is very common in voodoo. Uh, You always have these pairs of the loa or the spirits or the gods in voodoo. But it also says that you read like one book about voodoo, right? Like you didn't (laughs) research. (laughs) I read this one book and I'm totally qualified to tell you how to put voodoo into your television show yeah because we see this this kind of duality in almost every religion so it's not particularly voodoo-y right right one aspect of the show that we haven't really explored since we're talking about the divine pairing that i found a really interesting shift from the original narrative is for most of the season for most of the first season Ty and Tandy really don't like each other. Mm -hmm. For me, that's such an interesting superhero narrative of, let's say you found out you had superpowers, and let's say your superpowers are kind of janky. Like, they don't work really well, and they're really hard to control, and they don't do anything really useful. And then you find out that they only operate properly and at their fullest potential when you're with one other person and then you figure out the one other person is someone you really don't like. (laughs) So your superhero partner has to be someone who you don't want to spend any time with at all. 
I find that aspect of the show really, really interesting. And eventually they sort of overcome it by the end of the season and they're cooler with each other than they are for the first six or seven episodes. But I, I really enjoyed that progression, which is not present in the original. Right, but it is always one of the most interesting things about Cloak and Dagger, right, is that they are so almost necessarily codependent. They don't work without each other. But despite that, in the show at least, even when they do come together at the end, when they get over their dislike of each other, they can't touch still. So even though they are very intertwined, uh, they have to maintain this kind of necessary distance. In the comic, there's an easy out for this. So in order to avoid spoilers, I've really left off a lot of what's going on in the in the show and in the narrative, but Cloak has all the powers of f- fear and the darkness. So he obviously wears this cloak. It lets him teleport. When he touches someone, he can see what they fear. He's got all these fear-based powers. Dagger has all of these light-based powers. So she can create these daggers out of light. She can create blinding light. And when she touches people, she can see their hopes. She can see their best potential. The interesting part within the narrative of the show is that she is also kind of a morally ambiguous person. She is a thief and a liar and all kinds of bad stuff. Whereas Cloak is a really good kid and he goes to a private school and he's a basketball player and he's got this really great life. And so he's the darkness part of it. And so there's this interesting juxtaposition. The problem with that is Cloak and Dagger can't be in physical contact with each other. So they have to be in proximity with each other, but they're not allowed to touch, which becomes interesting once they become friends. Because when they touch, all kinds of weird things happen. Mm-hmm. So they can't really console each other. They can't really commiserate. They, you know, they are together but separate at the same time. Yeah. Um, one of the other interesting kind of changes that's made in the show that's not present in the comics is um, they almost reversed Cloak and Dagger. So in the comics, Ty is kind of the screw up and Tandy is the rich prep girl. And when they first announced that they were making this show, I think I was probably not alone in being a little bit afraid of how that would play out in the day's atmosphere. Like, how are you going to make this not racist? Well, and Joe Pekoski, who's the creator for television, talked about that pretty early on, Mm -hmm. about how he didn't want to put this tone into the show where they had to talk about race all the time. Mm Mm-hmm. And the socioeconomics really tied it to race in the original series because, as you said, you know, Ty is a kid from the streets. He's kind of a screw-up. It's a very 1980s. So, of course, the black kid from the streets is a complete screw-up. And, of course, the white girl, daughter of a supermodel, is the good kid. Flipping that but keeping their powers intact gives a whole different way to talk through the narrative, Right. This black kid who sees everybody's fears is a good kid, you know, and he's got a lot going for him and he's confused by his powers and he doesn't want to see the worst in everybody. So he is reluctant to use his powers in that way. Tandy, who can see the hopes and dreams of everyone, starts off her superhero quote unquote career by stealing people's hopes. She finds out what they what they hope for. And then she steals it from them. Mm -hmm. And so she uses her light powers for darkness and Ty uses his darkness powers for good. This reconfiguring of the two characters, I think, is really one of the bigger benefits of adaptation here. Yeah, because even though Ty is this this really good kid, um, as the show kind of progresses, you kind of find out that that is all based in fear, right? It's all because his parents are terrified that he's going to end up the same as his brother who's been shot by Connors, right? They're worried that he's going to be just another black kid shot by cops. So they move from the Lower Ninth Ward to Mid-City, which is a much more kind of middle-class area. At one point, when Otis takes Ty back to the Mardi Gras Indians, uh, one of the first things they say is, 
you must be from that seventh ward, which made me just laugh really hard. There's this very, so Ty is really only progressing as much as he is. He is only good because he's driven by all of this fear, right? Right. Whereas Tandy is kind of the opposite. Like she's fallen from grace. Her family used to be really well off and now her mom's an addict living in a trailer, kind of sleeping with whatever lawyer she thinks can help her case. And that kind of reversal, I think, was really interesting, especially in context to their powers. Yeah, uh, there's an interview with Joe Pekaski where he says he feels like the Tandy Bowen in the series is more cynical than in the original story and saying, you know, there's something exciting about having this cynical character who steals things and doesn't believe in the good of man yet sees the best in them when she touches them. And Ty, on the other hand, living in this world of fear and there's something interesting in helping him understand that everyone is afraid of something. Mm -hmm. And so they play off of each other. There's a really good, story arc late in the in the first season I'm trying to figure out how to how to talk about it without spoiling it <laughs> where Ty confronts Tandy about the ways in which she uses her powers and mm. I think it's really super interesting because in the if that had played out in the original conception it would be very much like thank you white girl for the lecture on how to live my life that you don't understand at all yeah the show engages with these questions of privilege um pretty often because they both see the other as being the more privileged one right so ty thinks that tandy is just this like white girl playing at being tough on the streets right so she's incredibly privileged in that way. Whereas Tandy sees Ty in his prep school uniform playing basketball and having this normal life and thinks that he's obviously the lucky one. And the show kind of engages with that a few different times, even fairly on when they first start kind of talking to each other. One of the things I love about Cloak and Dagger is the reversal of gender stereotypes with their powers so cloak takes things into his cloak and dagger penetrates her opponent and i don't hmm. know what to make about it but i love it so much going back even to the 80s like why would they do it in that way i love it i would argue in the 80s it was probably not a conscious decision oh absolutely not probably i agree with that <laughs> but it's still that's just a thing that we notice now mm. Yeah, maybe. I mean, I think even subconsciously, it's it's just an interesting choice. I would agree with that. Like, I'm not under the impression that, yeah, Mantlo and Hannigan did this on purpose, like, during their brainstorming sessions. Thought, wouldn't it be cool if Cloak took on this very kind of feminized power and Dagger took on this masculine power? I don't think that happened. I think it's a really cool thing that did happen somehow. I would agree. I would say, again, not something intentional, something we notice now that I don't know anybody would have noticed then, or at least not in any formalized way. The cultural conversation wasn't at a point where that would be a point of order, I think, at that time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess I can agree with that. I'm thinking of all the second wave feminists and the kind of sexual revolution of the 70s that kind of maybe led up to the 80s, but I don't think they were necessarily super involved in the comic book industry at that point in time, especially not in the, in the 80s. Very masculine comics, I think. Yeah, I would agree with that. I don't know what's wrong with it. I just can't stop thinking about it. No, I think that's very. I think that's very interesting, and I think it ties directly into, again the both the racial and socioeconomic characterizations on this show mm -hmm. yeah there's all kinds of reversals happening because freeform is so specific its audience is so specific not a lot of people pay attention to it and therefore they get to get away with a lot right with a lot of really 
pointed conversation that would drive away a traditional audience that a late teenager, early adult audience can really connect to. Right. You're not so much worried about policing it for kids who are too young and the people who might get upset about it are too old really to watch the show, except for us. (laughs) It's not really their target audience, whereas their target audience is kind of at the sweet spot. So I think we've maybe reached that point where we have to say Freeform's Cloak and Dagger, so what? Freeform's Cloak and Dagger, everyone should be watching it. It's just so good. But don't watch it for an accurate historical portrayal of New Orleans, maybe. Keep in mind that these are just TV shows in this city trying to take the most interesting parts and throw it together for a narrative. Yeah, I would agree with that. I would say Cloak and Dagger is one of the best Marvel properties available. It is certainly one of my favorite at this point. It's really, really good. It is in some ways remarkably accurate, in some ways remarkably not accurate Mm -hmm. of the city and of its history. So I would agree with you, don't watch it for a a historical or geographically accurate portrayal. But if you are interested in what's going on, use that as a springboard to find out the truth about the things that you are seeing. Yeah. I love a street level superhero. It's so much more interesting than, I mean, I'm enjoying Infinity War. I'm enjoying, you know, 42 characters in an intergalactic battle for existence. But I also like daredevil saying you know if you come just micromanaging the hell out of like five city blocks (laughs) if you if you come in these five blocks i'm gonna whoop you and then that's the extent of my superheroing there's something interesting about that it also has the benefit of being on a property already owned by disney so it's not going to get canceled like all the netflix shows exactly (laughs) it's already a disney show and while there are some legal hurdles Uh, the fact that it is a Disney show means that there is more of a chance of Cloak and Dagger ending up in a cinematic universe film or of cinematic universe characters ending up on Cloak and Dagger than there were on the Netflix shows. I'm really pulling for a whole freeform Marvel universe with Runaways and Gambit and Cloak and Dagger, and it's going to be better than Netflix. I I 100% agree. I think that would be fantastic. So, friends, you have a couple of days, and then April 4th will roll around, and you can watch the second season. So you should jump on you know, Hulu or your on-demand or whatever and get caught up on the first season so that you can join in with us as we enjoy the premiere of the second season next week. For Natalie Shepard, I am Dr. Christopher Bell. This has been The Deconstruction Workers. Thank you, Natalie, for being with me as always. Thank you for having me back again. And we'll see you in two weeks. The Deconstruction Workers podcast is produced and directed by me, Dr. Christopher Bell. If you like what you hear, the best thing you can do for the podcast is give us a rating on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher, Podcast Addict, or wherever you get your podcast fix. Feel free to check out thedeconstructionworkers.com. Follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash thedeconstructionworkers or Twitter at podcastdcw. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can donate as little as a dollar a month towards keeping the lights on at www.patreon.com slash podcastdcw. The Deconstruction Workers is recorded on the beautiful University of Colorado, Colorado Springs campus, 6,033 feet above sea level. The theme song for The Deconstruction Workers was composed by Raphael Crux. As always, please support alternative scholarship and public engagement. The Deconstruction Workers is copyright 2018, all rights reserved.